The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia podcast. This is your host, Charles Dutiadi, and I'm an assistant professor of humanities at Singapore Management University. This week, we'll be talking about the religion of Confucianism in Indonesia. Just a few weeks ago in mid-February, hundreds of millions of ethnic Chinese around the world celebrated Lunar New Year. Although limited by COVID-related social gathering restrictions, the ethnic Chinese ushered in the Year of the Golden Ox with family gatherings and rituals like praying at temples, lighting fireworks, and giving red angpao packets to children. In Indonesia, not only is Lunar New Year, or locally known as Imlek, celebrated by Indonesia's many ethnic Chinese, it is also regarded as the official national holiday of the Confucian religion. The latest addition to Indonesia's list of six official religions, little is known about Indonesia's brand of Confucianism. With Confucians comprising less than 0.05% of the population, roughly translating to about 180,000 Confucians nationally, Confucianism is Indonesia's smallest religion. However, while the religion itself is small, Indonesian Confucianism is unique because the state actually recognizes it as an official religion. In other countries with large ethnic Chinese populations like Singapore and Taiwan, Confucianism is regarded more as a belief system or moral principles rather than as an institutionalized religion. Why and how then did Confucianism come to be recognized as a religion in Indonesia? Who are Indonesia's Confucians, and what does the future hold for the Confucian religion in Indonesia? To understand more about Indonesian Confucianism, I speak to Dr. Evi Sutrisno via Zoom. Dr. Sutrisno is a lecturer at the School of Social and Political Inquiry at Universitas Gajah Mada in Yogyakarta. She completed her PhD in Anthropology at the University of Washington with a thesis that looks at the establishment and evolution of Confucianism as a religion throughout Indonesia's history. As well as Confucianism, Dr. Sutrisno's research interests also include Chinese-Indonesian identity politics, religious politics, and multiculturalism in Indonesia. So I have here on Zoom, uh, all the way from Yogyakarta, uh, Mbak Evi Sutrisno. Mbak Evi, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Hey, Richard, thank you so much for inviting me. It's such an honor uh, for me to... Uh, to be a speaker in this uh, session. Thank oh, you. It's, it, I'm so thrilled to, uh, to talk to you today uh, because in researching this topic, actually, um, I'm embarrassed to admit that as a researcher of Chinese Indonesians, I actually don't know very much about the topic of Confucianism and especially Confucianism as a religion in Indonesia. So I've had to do a bit of research on that. Um, so I'm glad that I'm speaking to you, who's the expert on this topic. For many of our uh, listeners who may not be so familiar with the topic, uh, we know that Confucianism is one of Indonesia's uh, six official state religions. Uh, but before we get to the story of how Confucianism became one of Indonesia's six official religions, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the history of how Confucianism arrived in Indonesia. Okay, this is a great question. I think uh, we, we know that uh, the Chinese and also Indians and Arab people came to Indonesia 
many years, even centuries before the Dutch uh, and the European people came to the archipelago. Um, in that time, uh, the Chinese came to Indonesia and of course, uh, they brought uh, the culture and the tradition, but it, it became a loose tradition and uh, culture because uh, they integrate themselves to the local communities. But among the Chinese, actually, there was kind of like a strong values that they need to respect their parents. And we called it uh, filial piety. And it was borrowed uh, from the Confucian values. So uh, what I want to say is Confucianism at that time came to the archipelago as values, as traditions. Hmm. And it was practiced uh, by many Chinese at that time, even though uh, they became integrated in in the local culture. And during the Dutch uh, colonial time, more immigrants, workers from China came to, came to the Dutch East Indies. And with the Dutch uh, racial segregation politics, uh, the identity of being Chinese, uh, it became uh, quite strong. And uh, of course, there were Chinese who built temples, yeah, Chinese temples, or we called it Kelenteng mm -hmm. here. Yes. And they still practiced uh, the filial piety and also they maintained the connection with the, uh, their ancestors uh, through rituals. And uh, we know that uh, there were worships uh, in Chinese styles everywhere. So. And these two, uh, like the filial piety and uh, maintaining uh, the good relations with uh, the ancestors, both came from the Confucian tradition, even though these people didn't learn about the sacred texts of Confucianism. Because uh, we know in China, even Confucianism is a very elitist only uh, the bureaucrats, basically, who learned uh, about the text but it became a lived uh, religion or values, uh, you can call it like that, um, for the people to, uh, to follow and to, uh, to maintain yeah, uh, the, the Confucian tradition, basically. But they didn't, they didn't call it as Confucian religion yet. I think like uh, there was a change, a massive transformation about the understanding of these uh, values as, a relig uh, as religion when it came in the late 19th century. So we knew that in China there were many uh, difficulties with a lot of wars and rebellions. Um, so many Chinese, uh, both in, in the Dutch East Indies, but also I identified that in Singapore with Dr. Limbun Kang as the initiator, uh, many were uh, concerned with the declining of the Chinese uh, status, uh, both in mainland, but also uh, in the colony. Right. So there were uh, parallel movements between 
Singapore and Indonesia uh, by late uh, 19th century. It's around like 1890s. So I'm, I'm glad you touched on that, Mbak Effie, because what is fascinating, um, at least to me, is that in these other countries, um, although Confucianism, like you mentioned before, um, had a bit of a revival in the, in the beginning of the 20th century, um, in other countries, it, it never became a religion. It never became a, an established religion like it did in Indonesia. Um, and like you mentioned before, it was, it was more of a belief system or, or, uh, or a social movement. So how was it uh, actually that Confucianism became a religion in Indonesia? Indeed, uh, it came as values and in the beginning it was introduced as kind of like a moral values, yeah? But we know that um, by the late of the 19th century, there were a lot of proselytization uh, by the uh, Dutch missionaries uh, in the archipelago. And especially in West Java at that time, uh, there were many Chinese people who sent their children to the Dutch uh, missionary schools. Right. And then uh, they become they became Christians, right? And this was some uh, Chinese people worried about the changing of identity and the the neglect of their own root. So, and at that time, there were also uh, the opium uh, banning uh, for the Chinese to trade the opium, and this is a little bit irony because. Um, at that time, uh, there were campaigns against the Chinese as a yellow perils, mm -hmm. as uh, uncivilized people, as, uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, irresponsible people. And they use, uh, these Chinese, they use Confucianism as the way to polarize uh, their status by saying that uh, of course, it's uh, indirectly, yeah? but they said, like, uh, we have our own culture, which is also a very uh, noble culture, right. and it's older than the European culture. So please, step, uh, please uh, stick back to our own culture and, and try to be kind of like, uh, not, to, not proud, but uh, it's more kind of like, to be uh, more equal with the Europeans. Right. So that's the, the beginning, actually, how they introduced uh, Hikayat Konghuchu. That means uh, the life story of Confucius. If I, if I get this correctly, uh, uh, Effie, and this, is, and this is really interesting, actually. So you're saying that actually in the turn of the 20th century, as Confucianism becomes a narrative uh, used by Chinese community uh, to, I guess, garner a sense of pride towards Chinese culture and perhaps to garner a sense of patriotism and, and to modernize, I guess, the relevance of Confucian teachings for the Chinese, it actually also 
infuses uh, traditional Confucianism with uh, European Christian style institutionalization of the religion itself. Is that, am I getting that right there in terms of like how Western Christian values actually mix together to create this hybrid understanding of Confucianism less as a moral belief system and more as a like, as a religion? Yes, that, that's more or less correct in a way that after uh, the bitter experience being discriminated by the European uh, colonizers, these Chinese, they want to reinterpret actually Confucianism in a more rational way. Right. And at the time, religion became uh, one of the markers of modernity right so rationalism is a very uh, strong at the time uh, so they instead of uh, uh, promoting confucianism as rituals as before then they promote confucianism as teaching so and uh, this is very much parallel to the suggestion of Dr. Limbun Kang from Singapore. So these people, the elites at that time, they were the uh, literate uh, people. So they learned about Confucian texts uh, from the Western sources because they couldn't speak any uh, Mandarin anymore. Uh, so at that time, uh, possibly, there were already some Christian influence uh, influences in in the narratives about Confucianism in European language. So to fast forward a little bit, by um, Effie, to talking about how uh, Confucianism, after a period of time of being recognized as uh, you know unofficially, um, and I think uh, under uh, the presidency of Bung Karno. Um, Confucianism was regarded as one of the six religions of Indonesia, right? But that changed in the New Order period where Confucianism was uh, not recognized as, um, uh, as, as a religion. Perhaps can you talk to us a little bit about what happened to Confucianism as a religion um, in, in that period of assimilation during the Suharto period? Yes, you're right uh, that during the Sukarno order, it was finally after uh, more or less 20 years waiting and negotiating with the Indonesian government. So it's uh, Confucianism uh, finally was recognized as a religion uh, in January 1965. So it's not automatically uh, acknowledged by the state after the independence of Indonesia. But why it takes a form of religion, because also during the uh, post-colonial Indonesia, the government uh, have Pancasila. Uh, there is uh, the foundation of our nation. And the first uh, article said that uh, we believe in one almighty God. So, and it, it is translated as uh, one should embrace a uh, religion. And uh, during the Suharto era, uh, unfortunately, he started the, uh, his uh, period with a massive killings against communism. Mm -hmm. And there was a kind like a big uh, false uh, by 
connecting uh, communism with atheism. So a lot of people at the time tried to avoid uh, the killings by embracing one of the religion. And Confucianism at that time, in the early of Suharto period, Suharto has already been hostile to Chinese culture and Chinese educations and also organizations, but he still accepted Confucianism as one of the religions in the country until uh, around uh, early 1970s. Uh, after he managed to get a more established uh, position as a president in Indonesia after the election, uh, his government started to problematize whether Confucianism is a religion or not. And uh, they use several arguments that Confucianism is actually not known uh, as a religion in China. So why should we in Indonesia uh, accept this as a religion? So right. that, that was one of the reasons. And also there were a couple of accusation that Confucianism doesn't really have a figure of God and it doesn't go along with the Pancasila, as I mentioned before. But actually, the Confucianism in Indonesia, they have already formulated the concept of Tian, uh, which were very much compatible to the monotheistic uh, principle in Pancasila. So, but this is something that will go deeper in theological uh, dimension. Right. Uh, and we don't have time. I wish this. we do, but unfortunately. <laughs> so that's so that's interesting. Um, so like, you know, I see from the from the story that you're uh, you're telling here, Effie, that actually um, the journey of Confucianism in Indonesia from the early twentieth century all the way until um, until the New Order period. Um, is, is almost one of survival, isn't it? Like it's it's a belief system that became a religion and that modified itself in order to fit within the state's narrative of what a religion should look like. Yes, uh, we can see we can see it that way. But long before the post-colonial Indonesia, under the pressure from the missionaries, uh, the Dutch missionaries who were at that time using their own tradition as the religious tradition as the standard uh, for uh, evaluating other religions and belief system. Uh, that were already the struggle has started at the time. And uh, like, you know, uh, the concept of Tian, the concept of prophet, the sacred text, has been, have been basically uh, formulated uh, by the beginning of the 20th century mm -hmm. uh, by Tionghoa Lekuan, which is that that was a Chinese association uh, who uh, promote, promoted Confucianism as the real or the truth, uh, the true religion of the Chinese at the time. Right. Uh, but it, it is not only happened to Confucianism, Charlotte, but this is also happened to 
Hinduism and Buddhism in Indonesia. See, that's what that's my next question, actually. Uh, so, what happened to Confucianism as a religion under the new order when you know it it wasn't a state uh, religion? And what happened to Confucians who adhered to the religion, but uh, I guess uh, under the the new regulations found themselves to be religionless? Yeah, actually, I feel so sorry for the Confucian believers because. Uh, their uh, their religious status were you know was considered as a sect by the uh, the Indonesian government under the new order. So the government basically discouraged them to to worship in their way. So there were a kind of like invisible pressure uh, to convert to the five acknowledged religion. So, of course, uh, the number of the Confucian believers became, um, you know, fewer and fewer within 20 or, uh, yeah, more or less 20 years of oppression. And they didn't get any um, support from the state. They couldn't teach their religion to the schools. As you know, in Indonesia, uh, we have a kind of like a religious classrooms uh, in every schools uh, from the elementary uh, to the high school levels and the confusion uh, believers they couldn't the the children um, their children couldn't learn confusionism at schools so it was a very uh, difficult time and they couldn't uh, use uh, their religious identity in the identity card so, Every Indonesian after uh, the age of 17 years old, they have to register themselves and they get the identity card. We call it KTP. Mm -hmm. And in this KTP, uh, there is a column of religion. So you should mention your religion. Otherwise, you will be associated with communism and it, can be, uh, it, it could endanger your lives, basically. So for the Confucian believers, unfortunately, they couldn't put Confucian uh, religion as their uh, religious identity in the KTP anymore. So many of them then uh, converted to other religion just to uh, avoid uh, the discrimination and uh, the difficulties, administrative difficulties uh, from the government. And also for the Confucian believers uh, under the new uh, Suharto new order regime, uh, they couldn't register their marriage, they couldn't uh, register the uh, birth uh, certificate uh, uh, for their babies, uh, kind of like uh, because uh, if they want to do their marriage under Confucian uh, religion, the state would not uh, acknowledge it. So they don't have a kind like uh, in, in the perspective of the state, uh, those who were married uh, under the Confucian um, way, they were not legitimate uh, marriage.
What about so uh, after uh, 1998 and, you know, of course, one of the big achievements uh, by uh, various uh, Chinese Indonesian social organizations and lobby groups that fought for uh, greater uh, freedom and greater recognition of various Chinese Indonesian identities and cultures uh, in the Pusuharto era is the recognition, uh, the, the reclaiming of that recognition of uh, Confucianism as one of the state's religions and also so the recognition, I think it was in 2002 by President Megawati Sukarno Putri, uh, recognizing Chinese New Year um, or Imlek in the Indonesian language as a Confucian religious holiday. Um, so, you know, of course, this was considered to be a, a, a great achievement um, uh, and great recognition for Confucians in Indonesia. How has, um, from your research, Ma Effie, and from your own experience, what is the situation like uh, since then until now for Indonesia's Confucians? And can you tell us a little bit about who contemporary Confucians are? Yeah, unfortunately, um, even though now it's already re-acknowledged as a religion, not so many people who were already converted uh, to other religions they were willing to come back as a, a Confucian uh, believers. So many of them maintained uh, their so-called new religion. Uh, and nowadays, uh, according to the census uh, in 2010, there were um, 118,000 of Confucian believers across Indonesia, right. which is, it's only 0.05% uh, of the total population. And mm -hmm. we are now still waiting for the, the newer census, the newest census, uh, which, uh, which was in 2020. Seems quite low, uh, 118,000. Mm -hmm. um, do you mm -hmm. think that number is accurate, Ma Effie? More or less, this was uh, counted based on the identity in your uh, KPP, yeah? Right. But actually, there were many people who practiced back uh, the Confucian traditions, but uh, they kept uh, or they keep uh, their new religion as their formal identity in the KTP. Right. So if we include them as, let's say, uh, not as a Confucian religious believers, but at least as a Confucian uh, ritual practitioners, uh, of course, the number is a little bit uh, too low, yeah? Mm. But uh, yeah, if we use it strictly, then uh, indeed, uh, those who uh, do, who put uh, the Confucianism as their religious uh, identity, uh, the number is not that big. And according to my observation, I went to several uh, cities in Indonesia, like Solo, Semarang, Surabaya, but also uh, Pontianak, Singkawang, Tuban, uh, there were uh, fewer uh, still, yeah, uh, the conclusion of communities uh, were still quite low until last year. I see. So what do you think? I mean, you're the, um, you know, as 
you're the historian on this topic and you've also been researching this topic for a long time by Effie. What do you think is, I guess, uh, the trajectory for Confucianism growing forward? Do you see uh, younger generations um, of, of uh, the, the children or the, um, the grandchildren of former Confucians? Do you see more and more young people taking up Confucianism? Yeah, I think uh, the trend in the future is that the younger generation um, they need more time, longer time, uh, to re-embrace uh, the rituals and the values uh, of Confucianism because after the alienation, like a long alienation from the Chinese culture, uh, of course we know English, but there were, uh, there are more uh, rituals that have been uh, fading away from the lives of the Chinese Indonesians uh, nowadays. Uh, for example, those uh, which are related to Confucianism are uh, Jingning, which is uh, you visiting the tomb of your parents and ancestors uh, in April 5 every year, for example, and then you worship uh, them uh, by uh, with a food offerings, that kind of uh, tradition has been fading away. And then also um, the yearly uh, commemoration of uh, those who passed away and they are no have they are now have no families anymore. Oh, hungry ghost so, festival. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, to to worship them. So every year. Uh, in September or October, uh, the people usually, they they celebrate uh, the Hungry Ghost Festival and um, not so many young Chinese Indonesians familiar with the types of rituals. So I think, uh, yes, uh, there, there will be uh, kind of like uh, more efforts, yeah, to reintroduce the the fading away Chinese culture and uh, values and traditions uh, to the to the younger Chinese Indonesian. My last question by Effie. So Chinese New Year this year uh, here in Singapore, it was also uh, restricted. It's not as usual with the festivities and everything because of COVID-19 pandemic uh, restrictions in Indonesia. Uh, I'm sure it was the same. Can you tell us a little bit about how Chinese New Year this year was different for Confucian adherents uh, because of um, the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, uh, I think it happens worldwide. Uh, the Confucian communities here, um, they some of them were still going to the temples, but of course, uh, they apply a strict uh, pro uh, health protocols. So um you know like uh there there should be only a couple of people in the temple before you can enter the temple uh so people take turns basically to mm. pray uh in the temple many families actually uh did video calls and say to their parents because they couldn't go home or they couldn't visit the parents what uh amazed uh, amazing thing for me is um uh, the creativity of the community of course you 
you miss uh, the uh, personal dimension yeah because of course zoom has a limitation as well you cannot uh, go to the chinese festivals but on the other hand you can invite uh, people regardless their place uh, so to join uh, your celebration so like uh, the imlek the the um uh, the Prayaan Imlek National, what is in oh, English? Oh, the National, Im, uh, the national Imlek or Chinese, yeah. uh, the National yeah. Chinese New Year Celebration. Celebration uh, done by the Matkin, uh, that's the highest council of Confucian, Confucianism in Indonesia. Uh, they use uh, the YouTube and thousands of people uh, attended uh, the celebration and before, usually, like only the Confucian uh, tend to attend the uh, tended to attend the ceremony, but uh, this year it opens to public. So you, whatever your uh, religious background, if you want to see and you want to learn about Confucian uh, way of uh, celebrating Imlek you can just go to their YouTube. So uh, that's uh, the opportunities that uh, opened uh, after the pandemic. I think not just not just confusions, but also like adherence of other religions. We all have to uh, adapt to the new normal. Uh, but thank <laughs> you so much, Effie um, Sutrisno, for talking to us today about the extensive history of Confucianism uh, in Indonesia and how it came to be a religion. Um, and and also for telling us a little bit about how Confucianism has adapted, including to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic that we are in the middle of now. So thank you very much, Ma Effie, for uh, talking to me today. Thank you so much, uh, Charlotte, for inviting me. I really enjoy talking to you all. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Dr. Evi Sutrisno. Talking Indonesia will return on the 11th March. In the meantime, remember that you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been Charlotte Satyadi for the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.